You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. All right, we've got Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. Check. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Those are numbers I don't think I've ever seen. So I need to talk to professional about this. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Federated Hermes, joins us. RJ, talk to us about this uh, year-to-date performance we've seen in the U.S. corporate bond market. Really, really noteworthy declines. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, noteworthy might be an understatement. Uh, yeah. I think you, me, most of your listeners uh, have not seen this kind of performance in fixed income. You know, 94 used to be uh, an infamous year for bond returns. This dwarfs that. Um, it, it, and it spans across really all the major sectors of fixed income. Uh, you, you were mentioning, I believe, the, the Bloomberg investment grade corporate index down 13.4. You know, overall, the ag, of which that's a component, is down 9.7. Treasuries are down just about 9. Uh, munis are also down a uh, comparable amount, uh, 10%. Uh, munis had a terrible month of May, by the way. Uh, I think the, the key concern munis. now from an asset manager standpoint uh, is trying to call when do we hit some stability on rates, number one. Uh, and number two, uh, dealing with what has been an outsized redemptions as investors are sort of fleeing the losses they've already taken. And I, I highlight that just because they've already taken yep. these losses. We are probably closer to the end of the sell-off than we are to the beginning, for sure, when you consider that the Treasury yields have risen you know, all across the curve, yep. 150 to almost 180 basis points. Um, we still are short. We think there's another leg to go up in yields. But the worst losses that we've sustained are already probably behind us. Um, and we're getting a little bit more optimistic as we start to look forward at this point. First of all, shout out to the INGO function on the Bloomberg terminal. Yep. INGO is so helpful uh, when talking fixed income. It just shows you all the uh, indexes um, well, that you can. Again, thank you. Another. Matt well, Miller. RJ just rattled them all <laughs> off as well. Um, uh, there was a great story, RJ, by Liz Capo McCormick and Alice Gledhill. Bonds suddenly look like a smart hedge again, um, is the headline. And you're saying you expect another leg up in yields. But in a way, I find this so exciting because, you know, for so long in my adult life, um, I couldn't get that much yield from bonds. And now I'm starting to see levels that I would be comfortable with. You know, I'm perfectly happy 
buying a, a bond with a 5% coupon. I mean, that sounds great to me right now. Uh, it's a great point. For much of the last 10 years, which in a sense were bookended by the global financial crisis and the pandemic, we had extraordinary economic shocks that were met with extraordinary monetary policy measures that drove yields down and caused price uh, for short and intermediate um, periods of time to be your source of return. Uh, the, the, the direct implication of that is that yields got very low, uh, and, and they muted the prospective long-term return in fixed income as a result of the measures that were put in place by the central bank facing the economic crises that I just mentioned. Um, at this point, you know, fortunately, the economy is growing. There are many challenges uh, globally, and uh, the inflation story is a very, a very troubling one to fixed income returns. But now that bonds have repriced higher in yield to incorporate the very hawkish central bank, uh, we, we're getting closer to a period where there might be some symmetry in, in returns again. Yeah. You get some income. That historically has always boosted your fixed income total return. Income is a component of your return, after all. Um, and going forward, I think that the fact that we've seen bonds start to behave somewhat more normally, where on a risk-off day, stocks are down, uh, bonds can actually be up again. You know, for a while there, everything was falling, which was a very adversarial investment climate for traditional diversification. You know, diversify bonds with stocks, it wasn't working. You know, 60, 40 portfolios weren't working. Um, so now that you've reset yields sharply higher, you're getting that income cushion, you're getting better prospective, prospective returns, excuse me. I would argue we still think that the 10-year Treasury is going to end a good bit above three uh, in this calendar year. Um, you know, right now, you've had a bit of a retracement lower. As By the way, what does that mean, RJ? What does that mean for uh, – what's the spread usually like to – um, investment grade corporate. Well, IG, um, you know, we've actually recently gone more cautious on IG. Um, investment grade, even though the economy is pretty good, you know, the, the sad fact of the matter is, is with inflation being so hot and the Fed having to be so hawkish, the prospects of recession um, in you know next year or 2024 uh, certainly have grown. Uh, I think that what the volatility or the underperformance is probably a better way of saying it that we've seen now in investment-grade corporates uh, are starting to price in that, that sort of shift in the fundamental macro outlook. You know, for a while there, uh, we were recovering from the depths of the pandemic economic shock. The Fed was pouring on its demand for bonds. You know, investment-grade corporates had a really nice total rate of return, uh, and now we're living through the flip side of that coin. If you look over the last five years, the uh, OAS on the Bloomberg – Corporate index, the one we were talking about, down 13-some percent year-to-date. Yeah. Uh, you know, the five-year average is around 115. Uh, currently, as of uh, Friday's close, it's now at a 141. Uh, and the spread has been widening you know, quite a bit, really, for, yep. for much of the year. Um, we still think that that could get a little higher right. um, as we price in the risk of recession uh, and as rates continue to drive yep. somewhat higher and cause slows out. All right, RJ, thank you so much. We appreciate it. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Federated Hermes. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What we've all become, I think, fairly smart at during this pandemic is this whole concept of the global supply chain and logistics and all that stuff because boy every company out there uh, blames the supply chain one way or another during this pandemic for uh you know some challenges out there and there's no better place to get the latest uh than with gene Shiroka, executive director of the port of los angeles why because the port of los angeles is a busiest container port in north america gene thanks so much for joining us once again we'd love to get an update and let's just start with your port give us a sense of how many Ships are waiting to get into your port now versus maybe six months ago. Um, maybe some other metrics that you look at in terms of getting stuff out of your port and into the economy. Give us a, just an update. Good morning, Matt and Paul. A uh, couple things first. Number one, first quarter busiest on record at the Port of Los Angeles. Month of April, second busiest April in our 115-year history. Wow. The number of ships is about 30 right now waiting outside the 150 mile marker on their way into the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. That's down from 109 vessels on the 9th of January. We continue to work that backlog and have record throughput at the port. The most interesting number to me is 200,000. And that's the number of containers on a rolling 30-day average we're pushing out of the port to the interior of the country. That's at about recorded highs right now. We've got to keep pushing that efficiency and getting the cargo into the domestic economy. So you're doing more than ever, and demand is still probably stronger than supply in you know, logistics terms. And I wonder about the morale of the industry, Gene, because you know, as Paul pointed out, we all now know more about the supply chain, more about logistics, and more about just how important it is for the American economy and for the global economy. Do you think that, you know, people working in this industry feel a lot more respect, you know, a lot more pride in what they're doing? Well, I think across the board, there's been a spotlight shined on this industry, and it can never be too bright for us. You've got dock workers who have been averaging six days a week on the job since the pandemic began. Chassis providers, liner shipping companies, marine terminal operators working around the clock as well with this deluge of cargo coming in and no shortage of areas that need to be fixed, improved, or smoothed out to help this portion of the supply chain. Remember, the American economy is 70% you and me buying goods, and we haven't shown any reason to stop just yet. Gene, talk to us about what you're seeing in China. You know, there's reports of you know, various levels of shutting down, reopening, and how does that manifest itself into kind of what you're seeing in terms of exports? Well, a lot's been written on this, but so far, we've seen the number of ships leaving Asia and central China at about the levels that we had anticipated. No real slowdown because of the lockdowns in Shanghai. And I'll give you a couple of reasons. One, 
I had worked there in the early part of the 2000s for a number of years, keep up my contacts on the ground and those relationships. I'm talking to these folks every night. We're seeing very good productivity out of the young Shan Deep Seaport in Shanghai. And for those manufacturers who are based west of town, the Hongqiao area, Hangzhou, Suzhou, even into Jiangsu province, locations like Nanjing, they're almost equidistant between the port of Shanghai and the port of Ningbo. Ningbo, over these last eight weeks, that's how long the lockdown has been in effect, is up about 25%, picking up the slack where transport companies can't navigate in their normal lanes. So we're seeing about the amount of cargo that we did before the lockdowns went into effect. No precipitous no precipitous drop-off, and some had a pined early on. What about the U.S. restraints that um, we've been seeing over the past year? For example, labor constraints. How, how have those uh, fared um, going into the second quarter? Three segments of labor, as we've talked about, guys. One, the dock workers, they're out there six days a week, full employment of the 15,000 women and men that have been on the job for the past two years with this heightened volume coming through. Second are the truck drivers. And as we've said, I don't know that we've got a shortage of drivers because the state of California has issued more than 640,000 commercial driver's licenses. And of the 9,000 port drayage drivers that call the port at least once a week, we could probably use a few more. But they've gone into other sectors, whether it's parcel delivery, working in other segments of the transportation network. What we have right now, though, guys, and the thing that I look at most, 53% of our truck gates go unused every day. We've got latent capacity to haul more containers out. We've got to take advantage of that. The third segment is the warehouse workers with 2 billion square feet of warehousing under roof from the Pacific Ocean to the desert region of Southern California. There are still about 10,000 job openings for the folks that handle all this product. And with less than 1% vacancy rate, that warehousing complex needs considered attention. Hey, Gene, a lot of folks, <clears throat> just, you know, economists in general have been saying, what this supply chain issue that we've all been experiencing over the past couple of years, what it may suggest is we need to maybe rethink this global just-in-time inventory strategy. Any customers that you talk to uh, say that they're reevaluating that or maybe trying to tweak it going forward? Yes, a, a number of conversations taking place. A lot of folks, what we've witnessed over the past couple of years, have been ordering just in case, not just in time. They didn't want to be known as the paper goods company of 2021 and 2022. So we see a lot of product flowing through. Quarter two, as I've shared with your audience before, was designated to be the inventory replenishment time period. This is normally our slack season, so folks wanted to build up those safety stocks. The inventory sales ratio nationwide had been as low as 2011. A lot of focus on that. And then thirdly, trying to segment these products from the parts and components which make up 20% of our imports that need to get to factory floors, goods that need to get out into market versus those that can continue this inventory replenishment are the segments that we've got to monitor very closely now and push them into the marketplace on the time basis that are needed. Gene, always great to get your insight. Thanks so much for joining us today. Gene Soroka there is the executive director at the Port of Los Angeles, North America's busiest container port. Boy, we 
know from past experience that lockdowns are not good for economic activity. And just take a look at some of the recent data out of China. Industrial output unexpectedly fell 2.9% in April from a year ago, while retail sales contracted 11.1% in the period. Uh, that's weaker than a projected 6.6% drop. Uh, let's get to the bottom of this and see what is really going on underneath the numbers in China. Shehzad Kazi joins us, Managing Director, China Beige Book International. Shehzad, tough numbers coming out of China. Um, give us your lay of the land about the Chinese economy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Look, overnight numbers were incredibly disappointing. Uh, but if you're watching China closely the way we are, this should have come as no surprise whatsoever. When we put out our note um, in April based on our brand new numbers, the sentence up top read, these are the worst economic data out of China that we've seen since the initial COVID downturn. At that point, every major sector was hurting. Every major economic indicator was turning down. Um, and it was becoming very clear that the pain that began in March at the beginning of the lockdown had made its way into April as lockdowns got more severe. Uh, businesses were starting to uh, pause activity and consumers were being forced to stay home. Why is she um, sticking to this, um, you know, even amidst pushbacks? I mean, it's clear what this does to the economy. And I'm not sure how it works out for the health of the nation after. Yeah, that's right. Look, I mean, right now, the problem that the, that the she and others are facing is that they don't have access to vaccines uh, that with high efficacy rates. They have a real problem getting their adult senior citizens, senior citizens vaccinated. Their health infrastructure cannot simply handle uh, if they were to see the type of outbreaks and, 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 and cases the way that we saw them here in the United States, or specifically how we suffered here in New York a couple of years ago or so. Uh, if, if that were to happen, I think you would see just a breakdown of the healthcare system there. And you would also see the wide uh, uh, you know, divide between the haves and the have-nots uh, take place. It would be pretty brutal. I think avoiding that is priority number one. If it means taking a hit to the economy right now, uh, then that's clearly a cost that the party is willing to suffer, despite the fact that they keep saying that maintaining solid economic momentum is a priority of theirs this year. Shazad, give us a, just an update on kind of where the discussions are or are not between maybe some of the Western pharmaceutical companies and the Chinese government about maybe getting some higher, uh, some better vaccines into the country. Look, we've heard some stuff about, you know, Pfizer pills, et cetera, uh, getting approval. There's a domestic mRNA vaccine that has now gotten approval. But even if this stuff were to happen today, uh, this, the rollout would not take place uh, for, for months and months to come. Uh, you know, we can safely say that as far as zero COVID is concerned, which, by the way, is a lot more flexible today than it used to be back a couple of years ago. Uh, but even in its current form, it's not going anywhere before the party Congress. It is an all-important time. That is where all eyes are when, when President Xi gets his third term. Um, and so and just continue to assume, as if you're an investor, that these types of lockdowns, uh, and, and especially the reversion back to lockdown, even if there is some uh, opening up, uh, is going to be par for the course of the rest of this year, probably getting into early next year. What do you think we should? the market should be thinking about when this party Congress convenes later in the year. What, what do you expect to come out of this? The, look, I mean, politically speaking, I don't buy some of the uh, noise that's out there about uh, opposition to, the, to, to Xi and, and, and so forth. I think that it seems quite likely that their term is very much guaranteed. The real question is what happens in the aftermath of that? How, what moves are done around the party Congress to stabilize? Big stimulus is not happening in China. We know this. It's clear and 
China Facebook data, it's clear in official numbers. What amounts of fiscal stimulus perhaps takes place in the second half of the year to help energize the economy? Does the you know do they move a little? Do they ease up on the property market? Does the property market get some additional breathing room? Um, that's possible. What's the nature of the tech crackdowns? Are they done for good? Highly doubt it. Uh, what form do they take next? So I think continuity of policy is going to be there. Uh, we just have to watch very, very closely on the ground. Uh, how is it being uh, implemented rather than just coming up with theories as sometimes China watchers often do? All right. Great, great stuff. It was really timely to get uh, you on the phone, Shazad, Shazad Kazi, Managing Director, China Beige Book International, getting the latest from continuing challenging economic data coming out of China amid the lockdown. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Fascinating news going on. One of the coolest stories is the JetBlue hostile takeover for Spirit. And it's not just uh, the U.S. airlines that I find interesting because we had an interview with Michael O'Leary, Ryanair, earlier. Um, and he was also saying, like, you know what? There's going to be a recession. People are going to go towards the lowest costs. And that's us. Um, that's, that's at least his bet there. And I'm not sure exactly what's going on with JetBlue and Spirit. But... Bloomberg News reporter Mary Schlangenstein is going to tell us exactly what's going on. Mary joined Bloomberg News in 1992. Yes. Is that right, Mary? And she, and she and Mary, since you're in Dallas, I'm going to guess your name isn't pronounced Schlangenstein. But since I just came back from Berlin, for me, that's what it is. Right, right. Yeah, that that's not how we pronounce it here in the U.S. But you're right on the German pronunciation. <laughs> how so? How what do we say? What what do you say when you're introducing yourself? Schlangenstein. I wasn't that far off. <laughs> um, in any case, that's not what we brought you on to talk about, Mary. W what's the deal with this JetBlue offer? I mean, is this kind of, um, you know, we better get this asset before somebody else does kind of deal? Well, I think that's part of it because, you know, for many, many years, JetBlue has tried to grow and they've always said they want to grow organically. But they lost out several years back when they tried to buy Virgin America. That ended up being acquired by Alaska. So now when Frontier came out and made an offer for Spirit, JetBlue looks at that and says, you know, this may be one of our last chances to really have a turbocharge to our growth, so we're going to go for it. Um, they were spurned by the Spirit Airlines board, and so now they're making this hostile bid uh, to get Spirit to take a closer look at all the details of their offer. So do we have any sense, Mary, is there any uh, regulatory challenges to either of these acquirers, JetBlue or Frontier? Does anybody have a an upper hand, just from a regulatory perspective? Well, right now, the um, JetBlue, I mean, the Spirit Frontier merger proposal is getting some review from regulators because they've already asked for more information. Um, so they are, that's already happening. But JetBlue would have to go under the same scrutiny if it reaches an agreement to, to merge with Spirit or to take over Spirit. Then that would go, have to go through a regulatory review. And there is come some concern. That's one of the big issues that spirit raised and rejecting, rejecting JetBlue was say, look, we don't think that this deal has a good chance of being consummated. And because we don't think that, we're not even going to look at your offer 
you know, we're not going to evaluate the financial side of it or anything like that because we don't think it can be done. And, of course, JetBlue is arguing against that. Mary, I have indeed just moved back from uh, six years living in Germany. And one of the coolest things about living in Europe is you can travel everywhere, and you do, because it's just so cheap. I mean, you go from one end of the continent to the other, and you can do it for less than 100 bucks round trip. Um, pretty much guaranteed all the time, not just like once in a while when there's a sale. Is there any chance of that kind of super low-cost model coming to the U.S.? What, what's What's the differentiator? Well, if you, if you did see Frontier and Spirit combined, they are the two largest ultra-discounters already. Those are the people that charge you a very low, fair price, but then they charge you for everything else, like if you want to print your boarding pass, if you want to get a bottle of water on board. They charge you for everything. We call that nickel and diming. Yeah, yeah so a lot of people do call it nickel and diming. Um, and so this would make them a very large airline, um, you know, and, and – there's the expectation that there would be lots of growth beyond that simply because the resurgence in travel post-pandemic has primarily been domestic leisure. And, and people really don't see that slowing down anytime soon. So, you know, they would have the ability to grow likely quite a bit in the future, and they would be the largest carrier in that space. By but far. do we, I mean, there's no jet, uh, there's no uh, easy jet over here. There's no Ryanair. There's no Wizz Air. Is that just... Um you know, lobbying by Delta and United um, and the U.S. Congress keeping that kind of competition out of this market? Well, you've got, you've got Spirit, you've got Frontier, you've got Allegiant, you have the new Breeze, you have the new Evolo. Those are all in that category of the discounters where they're, they're trying to win your business by really cutting their fares. Now, the issue is none of those guys have international operations or they have very small near international like to the caribbean or down into mexico so they aren't ever going to have the scale of a united or an american airlines or a delta airlines or even a southwest airlines which has some international operations as well um so i don't think you're going to see you know any of those big carriers face a big threat in terms of network dominance but there are we are seeing more and more people you know enter the industry with this lower cost model uh, Mary, just about 30 seconds. How do you think Frontier responds to this JetBlue going hostile? Um, well, we won't see a response from Frontier. I don't think we'll see a response from Spirit. Um, I think what you are likely to see is Spirit will come out and say, we're standing by our agreement with JetBlue. I mean, I'm sorry, we're standing by our agreement with Frontier. But they may say, we'll reconsider JetBlue. Or they may by their offer or yep. their decision and not do anything. All right. Good, good stuff. Thanks for taking time, Mary. Really appreciate it. Mary Schlangenstein, airlines reporter for Bloomberg News and assistant scoutmaster for the Boy Scouts of America, which is huge for me because I was the scoutmaster for some in New Jersey. Really? For many years back in the day. Cool. Yeah, that's good stuff. Now I always I always admire people. I think I put them on a pedestal if they made to the Eagle Scouts. Oh, yeah. I feel like that's well, a we huge a, achievement. We have a certain someone here at Bloomberg that was Eagle Scout. Yeah? Yeah. Michael R. Bloomberg was ah, an Eagle Scout. Really? Yeah, that shouldn't come as any well, surprise. No, he's an achiever. Of course. And of course, Michael Bloomberg, the owner of this Bloomberg radio and TV situation here and chairman, founder of Bloomberg LP. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. 
And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.